0: This is a Pensioners for Independence podcast. Our guest is Mike Russell, President of the SNP, the meetings chaired by Alan Logue of the Glasgow Pensioners for Independence Group. Welcome to Glasgow Pensioners for Independence, Michael. And um, I see from Wikipedia that you were born in 1953, so you yourself are definitely into the pensioners' age group now. So, well, Michael became an MSP in 1999 in the first session of our modern Scottish Parliament, and with only a few years' break in the early 2000s, he's been an MSP ever since. As Cabinet Secretary for the Constitution, Europe, and External Affairs, he was Scotland's front man in the Westminster's Brexit negotiations. I'm betting there are a few good stories to tell from being in those meetings. He's now President of the SNP and Political Director at SNP's Independence Unit. The path to independence is proving to be a rather longer and more winding path than we wanted, and it will come as no surprise to you, Mike, that as independence-supporting pensioners, we have a very personal and acute interest in that path being as short as possible here on in we want to be around for the Declaration of Scotland as an independent country. We're looking forward to hearing what you have to say um, and you have the floor.
1: Well thank you, thank you Marlene for um, the introduction too and I'm grateful for the invitation to to speak. Marlene you're right to say that I am qualified to be a member of this group and indeed I may well sign up. Uh, I'm 68 years old, I retired from the Parliament when I was 67 and I had hoped to spend a a bit of time on something other than politics Um, I am a a part-time professor at Glasgow University in Scottish uh, uh, culture and governance Uh, I was taking that role up again to do a, a little bit of postgraduate teaching a little bit of research and of course writing my weekly column in the in the national but um Last year I was asked if I would stand for the party presidency. I I was a bit overwhelmed by the thought. I I remember Winnie Ewing as the party president. I remember Billy Wolfe as the party president. It seemed uh, highly unlikely that I would walk in those shoes, but I did accept the the invitation and I was elected. Um, And it was at a time of particular difficulty for the SNP. I mean, I'm happy to talk about that later if people want to talk about it. And then um, having gone through it and having retired, um, Nicola then asked me if I would uh, help to essentially to, to restart the campaign. And I think it's, that's an important place to begin with. I have said and said often over the years, recent years, that I would like to have seen a, a, a referendum on independence as soon as we could possibly arrange it after the Brexit um, uh, decisions that have been put in place. And indeed, my own view was that that could happen in tw- the late, latter part of 2020. But of course, the pandemic made that impossible and it still makes normal politics or normal referendum politics very difficult indeed we've seen today for example the uh, the drafting in of, of some military personnel to two health boards in Scotland the pressures upon our health service are enormous and the pandemic is, with, is still with us the figures today show I think 2,900 new infections although uh, its its deadly effect has been severely blunted by the availability of the of the of the vaccines And the type of campaign we need to have to win a referendum and to win independence is a campaign of conversion. It is a campaign in which we meet people, we talk to people, we address meetings, we listen to questions, and we change people's minds. It's not actually the type of campaign we've just been through in in May uh, this year, uh, which was a very, very unusual campaign, but it wasn't that type of campaign. And therefore, I don't believe it is possible to hold a referendum campaign until we are in a more normal situation. And I am as impatient as everybody else in this call. And I, Marlene, I fully understand the imperative you are referring to. I feel it myself on a daily basis. But we can't afford to go into a campaign in a way that's not going to win it. And we need to win it by converting people. And there are people out there, what I would call soft nosed people who will change their minds. But we have to get to them and we have to persuade them. So I want to start on that to say that I don't know when precisely the referendum will be. Uh, Nicola has given a very strong indication, and shes I'm glad that she's done this, that she wants it to be in the first half of this parliament, which puts it in at the latest towards the end of 2023. Um, it is quite clear that we have the votes in the Scottish Parliament to deliver the referendum. And of course, we've also taken a different position as, as a government in the run up to the, the election in May, not to to put ourselves in a position of of people saying to us, what are you going to do to have the referendum? We say we know what we're going to do, which is we'll introduce a bill. And if that bill passes the parliament, as it will, we'll hold the referendum. And actually the question is, what is the UK government going to do in those circumstances with a clear cast iron mandate to, to hold that referendum? Is it going to go to court and stop that happening? Because if it does, it will be going to court to stop the democratic wishes of the Scottish people being fulfilled. So we, you know, there will be a referendum. I'm sure of that. I... Some of the criticism to say that Nicola and others aren't interested in the referendum is simply untrue, and I know it's untrue. Certainly not true of me, and it's not true of her, and it's not true of anybody I know in in those positions. Uh, But it's got to be at the the time in which we can win it and we can make those conversions. So when I was asked to to restart what was taking place, I I set myself essentially three tasks. And I just want to mention those tasks because I think they are the tasks that we need to fulfill as we are on this stage of the road to independence. And the first one is to start the flow of information again uh, and also to make sure that we're answering some of the difficult questions again. And uh, the flow of information has started. Um, The members of the SNP are receiving a regular mailing from me with uh, information and and statistics and and, and I hope helpful things. in addition, there's good work being done in other bodies. Um, believe in Scotland, Business of Scotland, for example, are doing good work in producing material, and I'm encouraging people to get hold of that, uh, to make sure it's available, and make sure that people have it. And also things like the eight-page eight-page printed leaflet, which we produced uh, earlier in the summer for, for individuals. We're hoping to provide actual material for distribution by the SNP um, in, uh, in November. Uh, in the run up St Andrew's Day. Now I would like to provide more for people who aren't in the SNP, but I don't have the resource to do that, and also data protection considerations means I can't use, for example, mailing lists that were previously put together for other purposes. But I hope, and this is coming to perhaps the, the bridging point to the second point, I hope we can also establish better relationships across the whole YES movement. There are a range of bodies like this one, which are non-party political, which have many members of the SNP in them, but have members of other parties and have no party in them. And I hope we can find a way to work together constructively to win that referendum and to move to independence. Um, It won't be the same for those who were there as the campaign in 2014. Uh, Politics has moved on. Our views of each other have moved on. And we'll have to find a way to work together in positively and courteously agreeing to differ on some issues. And that will mean a different type of campaign and a different type of envisioning of what an independent Scotland would look like, uh, about the ability to change as well as what changes. And I've started that dialogue with other, yes, groups. I mean, this is part of it. But as some people in this call know, I've also encouraged getting together to look at the issue of a, a transitional constitution. Uh, which is something that will reassure those who are not convinced by independence that their rights will be protected as we move towards independence. And that's been very important in a whole range of places across the world when independence has become a, a key issue. Uh, and in places where that has not worked, then independence has been damaged by it. So the first task has been to start the flow of information and to draw information done. And there's work also being done in government, and Nicola announced in the programme for government, that that work was restarting, work that I was doing, that my officials were doing, that stopped in March 2020. Um, Work was being done on things like the transitional constitution, work being done by researchers, and work being done across the Yes movement. And all those things are, are, I see things I can help with and encourage others to be involved with. And the third task I have, which is largely a task within the SNP that has some implications outside, is to slowly but surely build the capability of the party so that when the referendum bill goes into the Scottish Parliament, and when it comes through at the other end, and a referendum date is set, and we're ready for the full campaign, that the party is ready, the structures and the organisational ability of the party is is ready, and I will play that role alongside people at HQ and elected office bearers of the party, and that's what I'm trying to do. Now, all that is regrowing the campaign as far as the SNP is concerned, and also engaging with others in a way that we weren't able to do during the pandemic, and also during the difficult winter and spring when we've had disagreements within the S movement that for many of us have been been I mean, very disturbing and very difficult. You know, it's, it's no secret I was Alex Salmon's campaign manager in 1990 when he became leader. I worked very closely with him, as did Nicola, as did John, and it's been, it's been a difficult period for us, and a difficult period for everybody in the movement. And I can understand the frustrations that have built up, but we have to get through that, we have to move through that, and we have to get on with the task of building the independence campaign, and that's what I'm trying to do. Now I hope that answers you know, the processing and the and the, and the, the technical questions, in terms of the questions of, of what independence will mean and how it will operate and the, how to get there and some of the key issues that we need to decide on, some of those questions need fresh answers after the pandemic, after Brexit. They're, they're not the same answers that are contained in this, uh, this wonderful publication, which I keep on my shelves, uh, Scotland's Future, which was, of course, our, our manifesto for independence in 2014, launched in at in the end, of, I think, in November 2014. And 13, and uh, I used it uh, as my core document going round Argyll and Butte. I, I set myself the task in, in 2013 and 2014 of doing a, a meeting in every village hall in Argyll and Butte. And those of you who know Argyll and Butte know there are a few village halls. Um, and I think I managed almost all of them. But it won't be the same as that because many of the things in that, not all of them, have been passed by by Brexit and by the pandemic and by where we find ourselves. And other issues arise such as, you know, maybe we need to have aid memoirs for people on key issues, but maybe we don't need to produce another 600 pages. Maybe the 600 pages was the approach for that time and there's a different approach for this time. But we do need to provide uh, solid information. And we know from opinion polling and we know from, from focus grouping that people want impartial information. They want information they can rely on. And they don't necessarily feel they get that from political parties. Uh, but they don't necessarily get it from 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 yes groups either. So we need to find ways of of securing that for people. So um, any of those issues or any other issue, I'm I'm happy to address and to answer questions. There are many people in this call I know, and, and some I know extremely well, and are have been friends for a very long time, and others I don't know. But I'm absolutely open to question, and I'll do my very best to answer those questions. And in the next 45 minutes or so. So, um, I'll go to you again, uh, Alan, and, and and happy
2: to address. Oh well, thanks for that, Mike. Um, at the moment, there's no questions in the chat, but I'll start off and ask one. As our name uh, suggests, we're all pensioners. Uh, in the last referendum, that was one of the big scare tactics uh, that was used against the voters, uh, even outside the polling stations. Uh, if you vote yes, you lose your pension, and of course there was the letter from the DWP, etc. But my, I'm asking if the <coughs> SNP or yourselves are considering any sort of consultation like you're doing on the constitution, uh, on how uh, an independent Scotland can have a decent pension, which in turn would reassure the pensioners. Well, Gareth. Yeah, more ammunition are just dis- discussing it. Yes, I mean I
1: I think there's a number of strands to that that we can reassure people with and, and, and point forward with. One is the social justice commission that the party set up and which reported um a last earlier this year, uh, which is very focused on two things. Firstly, the ability to do things better in the well-being economy, and and that includes pensions. And then the deter- and that's that's an ability that is granted to any party. Uh, in an independent Scotland, because we will have the ability to do all of those things, which we don't have now. And then secondly, what specific commitments would we enter into? And the specific commitments have to include not just a guarantee of pensions and not just a guarantee of pensions that persuades people there is a guarantee, but also a progressive view of pensions, because we have, as we know, every one of us who's drawing a pension, we have the lowest pension, state pensions in Europe. So there needs to be a commitment to an increase for those pensions. But we also need to give people a commitment to an economy that works and guarantees people's savings and and resources. I I remember very, very vividly sitting outside the Bank of Scotland in Tarbert the day before the 2014 referendum with a a lady who was going in to... um, uh, take out her savings because she had become convinced that uh, that money would not be safe if independence took place. So we have to reassure people uh, about that too. And those are both things that can be done by the work that was already started within government when I left and which can now be completed as we, as we move out from the pandemic. And we've got to be able to do so um, because the demographic we're talking about is uh, the, the demographic least likely to vote for independence. Uh, and they won't just be bribed. You know, it's also uh, people have to believe what they're being told and we have to make sure that the information they get is verifiable and secure. Now, you know, I always say on these occasions, however, you know, even if the Archangel Gabriel you know, arrived with tablets of stone, uh, people, some people would not believe it. You know, uh, people will criticize it and there will be uh, you know, a, a, a opposition to it. But we need to find a way that what we say has that credibility and also has that detail. So yes, Alan, that is being addressed and will be addressed.
3: Thanks for coming to talk to us. Now, my, my, I'm a bit worried about the fact that we don't have any, um, any idea yet of what currency we're going to use. Now, Independence um, Pensioners for Independence, um, there's a group of us that run stalls twice a week in Glasgow on Argyle Street. And, you know, we, we are, persuade, we are um, making progress and, and actually just getting people to discuss what their issues that they have. But we need to be able to answer concrete questions, as in what is the currency going to be once we are independent? And I think that's pretty crucial. And, and people want to be assured of stability. That's, you know, that's their worry as well. They're, they're scared in case, sure. like you said, they're going to lose their money. Yeah.
1: You know, let's just distinguish between the SM and the SNP. The SNP does have a policy on currency, it's a very clear policy on currency, which is that there will be a transitionary period and we will move to a Scottish currency. Now, The position we're in now is that Nicola has rightly said that after Brexit and after the pandemic, we should look again at all our assumptions that we have made, and that's the right thing to do. But there is a policy on currency, and it's been a bit clouded by opposition to it from from some people who don't seem to fully understand a real imperative in this. We've got to have something that is credible not just to our population, and I agree that's very important, but it's credible to the EU and it meets the Copenhagen criteria so that we can move... Uh, from independence into membership of the EU. So we've got to have a policy that's credible on the international scene, as well as a credible that's credible here. And that policy is credible in both places. But some of the work that's being done in government is to look at that again and to make sure, first of all, that the policy does have credibility. And secondly, and crucially, and I agree with you on this, Isabel, to find ways to persuade people who are not economists, who are not currency experts, and that's all of us, by and large, yeah. <laughs> that this is possible and doable, right? So I, I accept the point. It is something that is being re-examined, but it's not right to say there isn't a, an idea. There is a clear idea. It is laid out in the Great Commission report and was adopted by the party. There will be a Scottish currency after a period of transition, and that fits in with the requirement we will have, for example, to raise money on uh, and borrow money, which every state has, uh, which we That's have to critical. do. Yeah. So, we, so we have to have a credible policy, as well as one that perhaps is politically popular. And, and that is an issue at the present moment.
3: OK, thank
4: you very much for that. I just wondered, um, in the first place, um, what, who you're actually relating to in drawing up what kind of an independent Scotland we're going to have. Are you still using the Sustainable Growth Commission Thing for um, as a basis and just tweaking it or are you kind of going back to the drawing board and I have to say the sustainable growth commission was quite unpopular in a lot of areas um, for, for things like you know the austerity bit the, how long they were saying I know that that's been rescinded how long it was going to be before we had our own currency things like paying off the UK's debts, without without or, or paying money to them forever and a day, um, things like that. Uh, so, as you kind of drawing up a new thing and not use just using that and tweaking it. And the other thing is, um, how wide are you? Are you throwing the net of who you refer to? Um, for instance, um, I mean, there's a whole lot of think tanks. Um, who may or may not be as popular with the SNP, I don't know. I mean, the um, Scottish um, Independence Convention uh, has produced a whole lot of transition papers. Obviously, you can't just take them, but, you know, are are they being included in your references? And even, dare I say, um, Commonweal um, have produced quite a lot of of, um, ideas and so on. They are a a think tank and they've produced a lot of academic ideas and i do get the impression that Commonweal not has never been flavour of the month with the snp I, I would like to see everybody being included when when they um, you know when you're drawing up plans for a new country so how widely are you spreading the net and are you still basing it on the Sustainable Growth Commission? That's the two questions.
1: Uh, well, 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 let's take a, a step back, Mary, because you know that we've been doing work on this transitional constitution. Mm-hmm. If you look at the composition of the group that met to do that, Commonweal mm-hmm. was there, Scottish Independence Convention yep. was there. I chaired the AGM of the Scottish Independence Convention last week. So I'm not I'm not, I hope, in bad odor with any of them, and I hope yep. they're not in bad odor with me. So, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy to have conversations mm-hmm. on the basis that we won't agree with everything. But, you know, we can make common cause on independence. And there are many things we do agree on. Yep. For example, you know, on the issue of land reform, you know, I would regard myself as probably more radical than Commonweal on some of the, those issues there. So, you know, I, I don't think it's fair to stereotype as in the way that we might do it. There is solidarity in achieving independence. The only caveats I would put in is that we have to treat each other with respect and we have to be courteous towards each other. And I'm not going to encourage working with people who will not do those things. But otherwise, yeah. everything is available and I'm happy to work with people. Now. The, the, you know, we also have to recognize the, the different nature of our organizations. You know, I, I'm the president of a political party that makes decisions democratically, looked at the Growth Commission report, approved the Growth Commission report with some, with some tweaking, and has subsequently, as you say, made some changes in the light of experience. It is free to make further changes. That would be the policy of the SNP. Doesn't have to be the policy of, of, of Pensioners for Independence or anybody else. It would be what we would offer in our, in, our, in our manifesto for independence. But it wouldn't be in our constitution, because what we're talking about is getting together to get a transitional constitution, to win a referendum, which we're trying to do, and then each of us will contend on, on how our policies are put in place. The issue on currency is, will we have a currency? Yes, we have to. We would not uniquely be the only country in the world that dealt in cowrie shells. You know, there would be a currency. We would have to have the, 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 the surroundings for that in European terms so that we were part of, you know, had our central bank or there was a European central bank. We would have to be able to show that we were capable of doing that. So there's international obligations to be met. Um, you know, we would, the issue of debt would have to be resolved. The reason the Growth Commission took the issue of debt in the way it did was because there are issues about international financing and borrowing money, and any country that's not willing to show and service its debt will be in trouble. On the other hand, the example of Ireland, uh, you know, mm-hmm. Ireland actually, did not meet any part of yep. debt. Yep. But it did pay, and this is an important quid pro quo that people forget, it did agree to pay reparations for damages caused during the Civil War. Right. So there was payment made by the Irish state. It was simply not to pay the date, the debt that the UK had accumulated. So there are issues still to be discussed there. We're not at the present moment just throwing all the policy out, but Nicholas made it clear that we will have a critical eye on some of the policy that we have adopted in the light of both Brexit and the pandemic. And therefore, you know the issue of currency. You no know, doubt, will be revisited, but it has to be a currency proposal that's credible. I go back to that, both internationally and domestically. You know, it is vitally important, and it would serve nobody if it wasn't. It has to be credible and understandable, and it will be. So, I just want to, you know, I want to make the difference between what we all agree, uh, which is on independence, and I think we have a broad level of agreement that we want a different type of country. You know, I'm more equitable, a more equal country, a country of greater opportunity, going to greater fairness, but we will have some detail that we will not agree on, and therefore we will contend upon those things, and we need to do it with uh, as much positivity as we possibly can.
2: Thank you. Um, Andrew yeah, Maxwell I says, I hope you know, we're not
1: planning a civil war. No, we're not. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I use the analogy only to make a point uh, about uh, you know, what is actually a, a much quoted situation of debt, it is, as ever, not quite as simple as it looks. Um, a, somebody, Jeff Bush has asked, I'm sorry, uh, uh, Alan, I'm just picking them up in the thing as we go along. Hello. The title of the talk is A Route to Independence. Did I get a hint that the Scottish government has given up the Section 30 route and is prepared to just go straight to Holyrood Authorised Referendum? Well, in a sense, uh, that is what the manifesto said in, in, in May. It, it, we published the bill. there are three bills that are important here. Two have been passed. The generic referendum bill, which I took through 18 months, almost two years ago, which makes the general arrangements for any referendum, which we did not have, uh, which exists in England and Wales in the preparer legislation, but we didn't have. So we did that. Franchise bill, which gives a very wide franchise, indeed, a franchise based on residence, not on, on citizenship, which is, I think, very important. And then the third bill we published in draft form just before the election. And that bill says what the question would be, and we'll make the financial arrangements. And we've said we'll bring that in at the right time, we'll pass that, there's a majority for it, and then we'll proceed to implement it. Now, there's no harm as a side deck to say, you know, by the way, can we have a Section 30 order? But it's not dependent upon that, because we have said that we will bring that bill and we will put it in place. Um, And that's what we, we should do. And Craig Dempsey, what is plan B if Johnson says, no, well, that gets us back to the old thinking, you know, which is what are you going to do? What we're going to do is quite clear, we're going to put the bill in. And we're going to operate the bill, and we're going to run through the bill. Somebody else, if somebody else then comes along and says we want to stop this, that's their business, but we'll defend that very vigorously. But you know, we, devolution is as it is. We want to move on from devolution, and this is the way we believe we should do it. And we want the UK to get wise to that, and you know, we're going to continue in that thing.
5: Uh, just to come back, Mike, on the uh, on the point: if you're going to uh, go ahead with the referendum anyway. Could I question the uh, rationale of even asking for a section thirty? Yeah, you can. You can
1: question whatever you like, and 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 happy to have a debate about it. Um, I think that it is probably necessary in terms of international views, and I go back to international view. I think it's necessary to show that you have you have endeavoured to do everything possible to get an agreement on having it. Uh, but, you know, that, that's, that's not going to be a decision for me. I mean, I'm not in the Parliament and I'm not in the government. Um, I think there is some sense in doing so, uh, but equally it is not dependent upon that um, and we wait and see what happens thereafter.
5: I disagree that it's necessary to do that internationally. If you, you can name on the fingers of one finger the number of countries that have become independent and internationally recognised as a result of a referendum, um it's just not correct that we need to that we need to ask for section 30 in order to uh gain uh to seek and gain international recognition that's incorrect
1: well in your opinion jeff it's incorrect i i've heard opinions to the contrary um and of course you know the point is that this has never been tested um and it's never been tested in court and what we had in the attempt to test it was well, it frankly went off at half cock and was was ill conceived. So um, no, I, I, we would ag- agree to disagree on that. Um, my view is that it, it does no harm to do so, uh, but as long, but we would not be dependent upon it. But you have a different view. Fine.
6: Yeah, I think that, that uh, you'd mentioned uh, earlier on, Mike, that uh, winning people over is obviously a necessary part of the strategy if we want to get a different result. And I was wondering whether the Labour Party supporters is the most obvious group that uh, you're planning to target, uh, because my recollection is that um, there's a sizeable number in the Scottish Labour Party that, even if they don't necessarily agree on in independence, believe there should be a second referendum, and I think it was this week in a poll in England, 40% of Labour Party supporters uh, indicated that they believe Scotland should be independent. So is that the, the most obvious hunting ground for, for conversion? And, and what methods might be used to help that?
1: It's what, Yeah, John, it, it's one of the hunting grounds. I mean, there, there are doubted, undoubtedly people, actually, people in the Tory party too, and fewer Liberal Democrats, but there are people in all parties who believe First of all, you're right to say that a referendum should be held, even if they disagree on in independence. But there are, of course, independent supporters in the Labour Party. We know that. And there are people who are willing to be convinced. So, yes, that is, that is, that is a key demographic, but there's a wider demographic, too. Um, there's some quite interesting internal research that tends to show that many people in, in that middle group who, who, who say they're not going to vote for independence, but you know, might be persuaded. They see independence, and let me—I'm not—you know—I'm not making an exact analogy here—but they see independence like having a better car. It be something they might like to have, but they don't think they can afford it. You know, so they're prepared to continue as they are. We have to do two things. One is we have to persuade them they can afford it, and secondly, we have to persuade them in fact they can't not afford it, so to speak. You know, this is really important to them, and that—that—that's a very interesting group. Uh, because it's a group that goes right across the ages too and the age ranges. So, you know, there's quite a lot of thinking goes into this all the time. Who would you be trying to get hold of and how would you switch people from no to yes? Um, and how would you switch? Some people have gone from yes to no back to yes. And, mm-hmm. and there's a European issue in there, of course, which is which is one that we we need to talk about. But in actual fact, I don't think there's easy, easy answers to. Mm-hmm. But yes, Labour is, is, is very, very important and Labour voters for independence. And, it's interesting actually. They they have a real set of problems. I, I'm I was surprised. Some of you may have seen the Falkirk by-election, council by-election result today, uh, which gave the SNP a narrow victory, but the Labour vote really collapsed. This was this was a seat held by the former Labour Provost of Falkirk, and it, it just it melted away. The Tories were the, the and the significant challengers to it, and it seems to me that Labour has, in failing to address the constitutional question. Really created the worst of all worlds for itself because it's being constantly outbid on unionism by the Tories and that's the Liberals are guddling around for that vote as well um, and isn't convincing even its own supporters uh, of where it is. So you know if I thought Anna Sarwar was cleverer clearly than he is but you know one of the great issues for Labour is can they revive in any sense without recognizing that the constitution is the key issue they have to address?
7: I just wondered why in light of the fact that several polls have been commissioned by the UK government uh, about the the likelihood of independence in Scotland, and we've got a freedom of information request, which is being um, refused for quite some time. Is there, first of all, is there any way we can force the UK government uh, to release this information um, I'm assuming the reason they haven't released it is because it's, it's, it's good for Scotland. Uh, is there any way that Scottish Government can com- commission our own poll to give us an idea of what the actual yes vote is throughout Scotland so that we know what we're fighting for and, and the, 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 the uphill struggle that we've got um, to overcome um, and t- to, to convince the UK government or as they say, the, the the settled will of the Scottish people will then force a referendum, regardless of whether Westminster uh, allows a section for to order or not.
1: It's it's There's a series of, of important issues in there, and thank you for that. I think that in the end, the UK government will have to release the material because I don't think you can stand against an information commissioner's request and the courts entirely, but they will delay as long as possible. I wouldn't put it past that. I just... Marlene talked about uh, you know experience of UK government. I would not put it past Michael Gove to be in a double bluff situation here. The, in actual fact, the figures are not particularly significant in any way and he's making quite a lot of it in order to further to be a bit of a letdown. You know, he is he is you know, the most sleek individual I have ever met. Uh, if he told me the sky was blue, I would go out and check. So I, I'm not <laughs> quite as confident as some people are with this, you know. But that being said, I don't think in the end the government can stand against this. And lots of good work is done by people like Jolly and Mon on the Good Law Project. You know, they bring a lot of pressure to bear on the UK and a whole range of things. But there's also the issue of double standards. I mean, you know, one of the reasons I think the the Scottish government would not commission such a poll is that we could never get away with it. You know, immediately, no matter what the result was, we'd have to release it. And if we tried not to, you know, we would be pilloried. And even if we did it, we would be pilloried for spending government money on it. So actually, given that there are regular polls on this subject, I don't think we need to do that. There's also quite a lot of private polling done by a range of organisations which isn't published, but which one can get access to. So I think we've probably got the information we need and the party does some focus grouping and polling too to, to understand what's going on. Um, but there's, there's really strong double standards operating, you know, all, all the time. Um, I mean, if, you know, if you look at it today, I mean, I, I, you know, this is this is just some, an Example, you know, the very difficult news that you know one of the, the, the lab laboratories in England has been issuing results which you know are questionable. If that was in Scotland, you know, there would have been a motion for a recall of Parliament. I mean, Parliament's on two week break at the moment. It, it would have been all over the place with the UK with the Scottish government. But I've read all the reports and I can't see any criticism of the UK government at all in it. And you know, and actually, that's a sensible thing. Governments do not do tests, but you know, the double standards are constant. Uh, and therefore, I just think Scottish Government commissioning a poll. If I had, you know, if I had been approaching government about that, I would have said it's not worth it because it'll simply be more grief than we we can put up with.
4: My questions, maybe not directly about independence, so it's sort of tangentially. Um, I was just, I know you don't speak anymore for the Scottish Government, but I was just wondering um, why is it that a country like Scotland that's got 90 islands, a coastline the length of China's, um, and we're no longer subject to EU um, procurement rules and so on, why is it we can't kickstart a shipbuilding industry? And Romania, much poorer than we are, virtually landlocked, away off the other side of the planet, far away from the Atlantic, they seem to be able to get a chance anyway and muscling in in our shipbuilding. Now, I know about McCall's problems with, with um, fulfilling their, their current um, order book and so on, but really, it's a, to me, it's a, a failure of long-term aspiration. This was a big chance. The Scottish government should have pulled out all the stops to give one or two of these ferry contracts to a Scottish shipbuilding industry so we can have a shipbuilding industry that's not reliant on the MOD. Um, to me it, it, it just seemed a wee bit like the Scottish cringe which is usually applied in a cultural sense but in uh, here it would be a bit industrial. Looking at the long term, why can't Scotland have a shipbuilding industry when Romania can?
1: I don't know. I have no idea why Scotland can have a shipbuilding industry well. Romania. I do know the, because I'm very close to the ferries issue still, I do know it is all an enormous disappointment. And what has happened at Ferguson's, and I supported the buyout Ferguson's has been a massive disappointment. Mm-hmm. But I also know that, you know, I mean, I, I would, the trouble with this, when you're asking me this question, is I would go a step back from this. And I would say, I do not believe that we should be commissioning two new ferries for the Isla run in the way that's being done it seems to me that we need to rethink how we're doing our commissioning of ferries and what they look like, and we should be buying ferries that are standardised, that are capable of using existing ports, not this absolute insanity of rebuilding piers every time we build it. I have spent an enormous amount of time arguing this case, and I still argue this case. Uh, There is absolutely no need. I'm now now on a roll on this, I'm afraid. You just have to allow me to finish my rant that we have to get rid of, of CMAL, which is utterly useless and pointless. Uh, it's a, an asset holder. All an asset holder needs is a spreadsheet, and we need to revise how the state ferry company is run. Very substantially, there is no, there is nobody in the senior management team, despite what they say, who has direct experience of running ferries, and that strikes me as insane. But as to why Romania has an f- industry and we don't, I don't know. So I'm
2: sorry to disappoint you, Mary. OK. <laughs> Thank you. It's a bit disappointed, Mary, but never mind. Uh,
6: next up, John D, you had a comment to make? Uh, yeah, uh, going back to one of the things that Mike uh, has spoken about uh, during uh, today, uh, about the various think tanks, groups, organisations that uh, you'll be able to uh, liaise with in order to put documents together. Um, and you showed an example of uh, publication, I think, from 2014, Uh, Part of the challenge, I think, that we have is that uh, we live in an era of Twitter and Facebook, um, uh, where uh, everything is down to slogans, Um, and uh, whether we like it or not, it's worked, it's worked for Boris Johnson, just getting that uh, sound bite out for the six o'clock news, it worked for Trump in America, and it may yet work for him going forward. And I think the point here is that uh, uh, given that we live in that era, we actually have to uh, uh, target a number of groups that we have by getting a, a, our own slogans out there. Uh, you know, you mentioned an example of, you know, do you want to have one of the lowest pensions in Europe? Let people know what the cost of not having independence would be by telling them the things that they're paying for that they don't want, like Trident and various other things as well. and. You know, I think these messages need to be targeted to the various age groups that uh, we're looking for. We are part of uh, an age group that apparently uh, is amongst the lowest in voting for independence. Um, uh, You know, and again, that's probably because people are fearful of the financial thing. Uh, But the reality is that they should be afraid of staying in the union because it's actually, as you said, lowest pensions in Europe. Uh, benefits are, are very poor, uh, and so on. And I just think that the way in which we get the message across has to be uh, very succinct, so that as well as the big documents that might come out for those that are deeply interested in politics, including politicians, uh, a lot of people are just looking for a simple message. And those messages should be aimed at the various groups, whether it's young people or old people, et cetera.
1: Yeah, I agree, and we do that um, you know, all the time. Um, one of the, the frustrations is sometimes people don't know what we've done because it's, they're not targeted for it or it's not reported. But we do a lot of that. And if you actually look at the, the the election in May, one of the groups that we were most successful with, younger people, was because we targeted through influencers, media, inf- social media influencers, with very simple messages that those influencers took up and repeated. Mm-hmm. And actually, that was that was very successful. So a lot of that is done. I think my purpose of showing the wonderful Scotland's Future document was, I don't think we should do that type of thing again. Uh, on the other hand, and I just want to stick up for those who want information, we do know that people are more likely to change their minds if they are given quality information, which they trust. And and a good example of this was in the citizens assembly we had. I, I set that up as a minister, I was very committed and I'm very committed to to participatory democracy. And it was, the theory of this was always that the more impartial information you gave to a citizens assembly, to a group of voters, the more they would make constructive and very positive decisions. And so it turned out the report from the citizens assembly was a radical, well thought through document, which I hope that the, the new Scottish government will implement substantial parts of it. And that was because by their own admission, they had the time, and the opportunity to look at things and to have impartial, good, impartial information given to them. And that's that's important.
2: Mm-hmm. So we have
1: to strike a balance here. Some people will be persuaded by slogans and, 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 and simple memes. Others, and particularly in the case of independence, require, wish and require mm-hmm. to have impartial, full information, as full as they can get, so they can come to a decision. Now, one of the problems in that is, in politics, no decision is ever final or full. You know, there's there's always interpretations you can put on things. Somebody will oppose it. You know, um, I think it was Andrew Wilson who observed on one occasion that, you know, if the SNP invented the light bulb, Labour would say it was a dangerous anti-candle device. You know, there's always another position that you can take. And it's a question of, of how you do this. But I, I I agree with the thrust of what you have argued. I'm just thinking, for
6: example, of the work that I think probably most people have seen of organizations like Led by Donkeys, who, um, you know, by projecting images onto buildings, including the House of uh, Parliament um, and various other videos on on things like Twitter, um, you know, have reached a fairly wide audience. I do agree that, I mean, it might even be the initial way of attracting people to seek more information, the detail that you're referring to. so I just think it's about making sure that the campaign is, is pertinent for the era that we live in and, and the attention span of many of the people that we're trying to convert.
1: Well, you know, so far so good. I mean, you know, to, 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 you know without blowing you know, the SNP's trumpet too hard, you know, we won four elections on the basis that we've got more votes and more seats than anybody else, and that is to do with communication. And it is due to do with more people accepting that communication is valid to them than in another way so I think I think we fully understand that I think the question is constantly to keep it fresh and it does keep changing I mean I'm you know I I, I tweet, tweet regrettably I, I I often think you know it's it's one of the less pleasant things to do in life um but uh you know I Instagram and of course I do a daily photograph on something called blip photos so I'm reasonably social media savvy but I do not tick tock and I cannot see circumstances arising in which I will tick tock you know and so that that's that has passed me by and no doubt there will be new social media which will come in which will pass people who presently tick tock by uh, you know you can't be on the cutting edge all the time but there are we need to keep changing as a party unfortunately we do employ people and work with people who are on that cutting edge and who do understand it so if you want to expand on that subject of the UK assets um, yeah. That can cover it. Okay, I mean, I agree. Assets and debts and assets go together. That is a complex negotiation we're going to have to have. Um, And, you know, therefore, the debt issue is not simple. It's not simple either in precedent, and it's not simple in terms of how it's negotiated. Uh, And we'll be negotiating with people who, you know, are not trustworthy, too. I mean, we've seen, you know, I had five years as a Scottish representative on the Joint Ministerial Committee on European Negotiations. Uh, You know, I've seen them at their worst and and, and worse than worst and you know we're going to have to be prepared to negotiate with people who who won't do it honestly and won't do it straightforwardly I mean what is happening at the moment of the Northern Irish Protocol was exactly what they always intended to do you know Gove was talking about this uh, 18 months ago which is get it done get it signed and then say you don't agree with it and you want to renegotiate it and that's precisely what is is going on now that's what got the European Research Group, the, the, you know, the real fundamentalists of this over the line and into support of Johnson. That commitment to them made, as we know from the indiscretion of Ian Paisley Jr. yesterday, made to the DUP and the ERG, that not to worry, just hold your nose and vote for this deal because we won't it. And that's, um, that is what is now going on. So it's going to be difficult. So we have to recognize that. And, and debts and assets are going to be uh, you know, important parts of that discussion. And you might start on you know, the basis that whatever sits in Scotland is an asset that we will hold on to. And then you immediately think, oh, hang on a minute, that includes nuclear submarines, so we won't take it that way. Um, so there are other things that you then need to do. I hope you remind me going back to something
8: rather specific about um, a possible referendum. And that's um, a while back, I think it was uh, 2017, 2018. Um, there was an independent commission on referendums and... Um, Uh, there was a meeting at the Royal Society of Edinburgh here, and um, uh, I, I, my husband and I both attended, (laughs) mainly I have to admit to say, what are they up to? What, you know, what's happening? I want to see what's going on here. Um, And to be fair, it was uh, very um, uh, balanced. um, And I looked forward to the um, report coming out, which got emailed to me directly. Um, went straight to the summary to look and see uh, to what extent the rules of practice so that it was a review of the rules of practice of um, uh, referendums that they were doing. And I must say they had it was the, the whole of the UK and they had meetings not only in Edinburgh, but in London, Belfast and Cardiff. So, you know, it was very fair and very balanced. Um, and I was delighted to see that they uh, recommended against a supermajority for any further um, referendums, because for a start, there hadn't been a supermajority required for the EU referendum. Certain people who are recommending a 60% um, uh, vote for independence can basically take a hike. Um, the the other thing was, um, I particularly was interested in thresholds, given what happened um, back in 79 wasn't it where mm-hmm. the threshold was introduced after the vote um, and they were very clear about that that um, uh, no threshold should uh, for um, uh, the, the percentage of the population voting um, should be allowed because it just encourages uh, people to boycott and yeah. I've heard a lot you know through social media and so on I've noticed a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, you can have your referendum, but the, the you know, the unionists won't, um, uh, you know, will boycott it. And it was pretty clear that that was uh, a recommendation um, from this independent commission. I am wondering, here's a question now, I am wondering to what extent the Scottish government have taken that into account um, in their creation of the
1: referendums bill. Yeah, um. We have taken it into account and, and we are also guided by the views of the Venice Commission, which is, you know, the advisory body to the Council of Europe and has worked extensively on the issue of referendum. I was just looking it up and, you know, they're, they're, uh, they developed their official remit is uh, to identify and develop standards in the areas of elections through codes of good practice on referendums um, and to make sure that they understand and recommend an electoral legislation. Now they've They've been very clear, as the the, the Commission was, that supermajorities and thresholds are wrong, and uh, you know, as a democratic instrument, referenda should operate according to normal rules and practices, which is you know, a majority of one is enough. Um, clearly, you need to be mindful of that in any work you do, both before and after a referendum, and secondly, the artificial thresholds of any description are, are wrong. You know, some of this stuff is is fueled by Comments, for example, by Alistair Jack. You know, exactly. it, it's a fairly simple principle in Scottish politics. Never take anything that Alistair Jack says seriously, right? Because he <laughs> hasn't a clue. I mean he is <laughs> completely clueless. Um, and and you know, he will just have dreamed this up. He will, somebody will have written it for him and he thinks it's a good idea. Mm. Nobody seriously thinks that, you know, 25 years have to elapse, which was his first condition, and that 60% have to support a referendum for a year or more in an opinion poll. It's just nonsense. I mean, it's complete nonsense. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the basic democracy of this is the people of Scotland have elected to government you know, a, a party, in fact, two parties who have come together in the Scottish Parliament, which who have a band aid to deliver a referendum, it is as simple as that, and the referendum they intend to deliver is what a simple referendum. Now, the complication comes with things like, um, you know, multi option referendum, and you know, that is very often a device to try and avoid independence. And you know, Gordon Brown keeps popping up uh, uh, talking about multi option referendum. The position of the you know, and, and I don't speak for the government, but the, the position of the SNP is that a, a simple Referendum according to best practice, which we've tried to do in our legislation, mindful of the Venice Commission and other bodies, is what is required, and that's what we'll deliver.
8: It was just because of what was um, mentioned about um, citizens' assemblies. Um, I've been on a recent call where there was a suggestion, if we can't get a referendum, wouldn't a citizens' assembly on independence be possible?
1: Yeah, it's, involved. Not, it's not definitive. I mean, you know, I, I agree with the view that, you know, uh, uh, Jeff's view that a referendum is not absolutely essential. Essentially, what is required is a test of public opinion, a, a test of will. Now, a referendum stands as a test of public opinion. Um, there are circumstances in which an election would stand as a test of public opinion. Um, but a, 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 a um, a citizen assembly doesn't stand as a test of public opinion. It may be a sample of public opinion, but it's not a test of that public opinion, and therefore I think the answer is no. Right. You
9: stated earlier um, that you have spoken to um, some groups via transitional constitution. Can you tell us who are the groups you've spoken to, and do you have plans to hold regional assemblies Um, as many citizens know nothing about these groups and I'm sure the citizens themselves would like the opportunity to to take part. And and, and a second little question uh, or little point regarding what you said earlier about um, the Greens now being in Parliament. Um, I remember at the time of the election that the Greens said that... um, they, they, I believe, they would not support um, a referendum until the end of this parliament. Does that give the SNP government a problem? No,
1: that, that, that's not their position. Uh, you know, I, I, I was involved in that discussion. That's not their position. Their, their position is that it should be held within this parliament, and they agree with what Nicola said, preferably in the first half of the parliament. So, so that's not a, an issue. Um, I'm happy to tell you what the groups are, and then to ex- elaborate a little bit on where we are with this. But we, we mustn't we mustn't overdo it. Um, the people who took part in the. Uh, initial meeting included Pensioners for Independence in actual fact, um, National Yes Network, Scottish Independence Conventions, Scottish Independence Foundation, Business of Scotland, Believe in Scotland, Commonweal, Christians for Independence, Constitution for Scotland, um, I see Robert is here in actual fact, uh, Aberdeen Independence Movement, Lawyers for Independence, Women for Independence, Pensioners for Independence, SNP and the Greens weren't able to be there but want to take part. Now, That was a a sampling of the yes movement. You know, there are other people in the yes movement, but those are uh, the ones who agreed to take part. Uh, One of the items on the agenda was to talk about um, what other groups might be involved. Now, I haven't got the, the, this is not a governmental initiative. This is an SNP initiative through me working with some others. So I haven't got resources of government to, to take this forward. Uh, what we have put together is a little resource to work with Dr. Elliot Bulmer, who has written extensively on this um, and who will help uh, to draw up a, a transitional constitution. Now, what it isn't is a final constitution. Now, I, I want to absolutely stress that 110% because a couple of people got the, the wrong end of the stick on this uh, when you know, I was talking about it at conference and, and I don't want people to be misled about this if we were to try and draw up a a, a final constitution of independent Scotland, secondly, it would be wrong because that's the job of all the citizens and all the citizens must be engaged in that. And therefore a citizens assembly type process is, I believe, the right way to do that. Um, And it must happen very soon after independence. Um, And, you know, in in those circumstances, there will be different views contending, and it must also involve people who did not vote for independence. Uh, And, you know, again, Elliot has written on that, why that is important. and And I agree with him on that. However, we do need something that takes us from the date of independence until that final constitution is ready. And we therefore, and we need to be something that's better than what we have now. You know, you could just, and it's always been the view that you could just muddle along, um, but equally it can't define some of the key issues. For example, it will not set the issue of the monarch as head of state. I mean, that is an issue that requires the the country as a whole to make a decision on. So what we're planning to do in, in a modest way is, first of all, to get a draft from Elliot. And it's more technical than anything else. So there are some other, there are issues of change. Then we're going to discuss it amongst that group. And and we'll discuss other bodies being involved. And then once we've got something that we think is a respectable document, and we're probably talking into the spring of next year, the organisations will agree to consult on it. Now, how they consult on it, I'm not sure. It may be within organisations. It may be more widely than that. So it's very early days, it's, it's an attempt to work together constructively, it's an attempt to follow the positives, not the negatives, and not divide on it, and it's not an attempt to finalise what's going to an independent Scotland is going to look like, it's an attempt to make sure that we can reassure people, for example, uh, you know, uh, I hope they won't need reassurance that the SNP's motives are pure, but they, you know that we are not in the business of forming a one-party state, and that there will be, you know, the, all the recognize and important protections for citizens and the protections of their rights. To go back to the Irish situation, of course, after the establishment of the free state and then the establishment of the constitution, there were people who felt very badly done to. There were people who felt that this had been an unfair process and it had been a process that worked against them and their interests. We want to make sure that that does not happen, that we can engage with with people and and make sure that people are included. So that is what we're trying to do. I'm not going to overclaim for it, and I'm certainly not going to get into the position that it's uh, the be-all and end-all and the centre of our work, because we've got to hold a referendum and win a referendum before this even becomes relevant. But it is an important step forward, and I hope that you know, bodies like Pensions for Independence will, will discuss it and find it useful.
2: So I attended that meeting, Mike, and that's fully what we intend to do. Once we have the agreed document, we will okay. then send it out to our members and ask for their comments.
1: Good. Okay, I'm a bit astonished when Jeff says that there's an SNP MSP who thinks we should wait to do 70% of the polls. I'm not going to be asked for the guilty person to be named, or I might guess actually. I think, but that having been said, yeah, I, uh, that's just silly. Uh, you know, you, you, there's no, there, there will be no absolute, hard and fast formula that will say, "Gosh, this is a moment." You know, um, but you know, 70% would just be. Sorry,
5: I was astonished as well, Mike. I couldn't believe it.
2: Okay, if there's no specific questions, uh, then we'll draw the meeting to a close. And Mike, thank you very much. you you for the I shall, I shall
1: sign on and, and join you. I can't promise to come to meetings, but I am very much in support of
2: what you're doing. And um, more power to your elbow. Thank you very much. Everybody. Well, thank you. you. To, if you go to our website and go to info and your membership will be, you'll be added to our emailing list. Let's put it that way. Thank you very much.